The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Today's scripture reading is from Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. If you're using one of the Pewback Bibles, this can be found on page 799. If you don't have a Bible, please take one from the Pewback as a gift from Park Church. Again, Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I want to say welcome to all of you on this beautiful Colorado day. Are you kidding me? Labor Day weekend right now. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for coming to worship Jesus with us. If you're new to Park Church, I want to say welcome to you. Uh, so thankful that you come and worship with us on a Sunday. We know there are a lot of people in the city uh, that are transitioning to maybe it's you're, you're new to Denver, you're coming here for school, new job, whatever the case may be. Uh, just a big time of transition. And so uh, if that's what's brought you to Park Church, you're new to the city, you want to say welcome. Maybe it's just stuff that's been going on in your life and you have a friend or you looked us up. Whatever the case may be, we're glad that you're here with us. Um, as a community, uh, we're learning to live our lives centered on Jesus. We've learned from God's word who he is. That he's the son of God who laid down his life to reconcile us to God the Father through his grace alone. It's incredible. And as a community, we're learning what it means to follow him what it means to actually be with him day in, day out, to pay attention to his presence in our life, to learn to live in light of that, but also to follow his way of life, to become like him, to represent him in imperfect ways as we're all people struggling in our own ways, but to reflect him in the city. And so if you're interested in finding out more about 
uh, kind of who we are as a community, what it means to kind of get more involved here, or what our mission is in the city. We'd love to get to know you. And so right after the service, we have a short meeting in the back corner in the gallery over there. There's a sign that says new here. We take about 10 minutes or so to get to know you a little bit, answer any questions you might have, share a little bit about our mission, and help you find some ways to get plugged in. So if that would serve you, uh, we'd love to meet you right after the service. What we're doing today is we are wrapping up a four-week series on this theme of prayer. Like I said, our goal is to help people learn what it means to follow Jesus. And as we talk about what it means to follow Jesus or the kind of Christian Bible term is to be a disciple of Jesus, we talk about a disciple as somebody who's been reconciled to God by grace, meaning we had turned away from God, the creator, the one who loves us and made us and desires for us to walk with him and know him and follow his wisdom for life. We turned away and through Jesus, you can be reconciled to your maker by grace alone. And inside of that relationship, which is founded on the grace of God and Jesus, we're learning. We are learning what it means to be with Jesus and to follow his way of life. And so we're taking time right now to say, what does it mean to be with Jesus through prayer? What does it mean to actually pay attention? Like you can kind of say, I prayed a prayer when I was a kid and so I call myself a Christian or I go to church so I call myself a Christian or I believe this certain set of theological beliefs in my head so I call myself a Christian. Uh, That's wonderful. Those things are all meaningful. Uh, but a Christian isn't just somebody who like believes things or said some prayer or does these things. A Christian is somebody who's been reconciled to God and is learning to actually like live that out, to actually be with him, to spend time with him, to develop a relationship with Jesus and to learn to follow his way. And one of the ways we learn to be with him is through daily prayer, just spending time cultivating a relationship with God through prayer. And so what we've been walking through for four weeks is, is an acronym to kind of frame out what it looks like to relate to God through prayer. And that's the PRAY acronym, P-R-A-Y. P, we talked about a few weeks ago, pausing to practice the presence of God. It's not just one P, there's lots of P's in that phrase. As I said it, just the assonance uh, just came out. Pausing to practice the presence of God. There we go. Uh, We're just saying God is here. Jesus said, I'm with you all the time, all the way to the end. That's great. That's true. It's true whether or not you feel it, or you don't feel it, it's true when you kind of feel like, man, that I, I, I believe that with all my heart and I'm not sure and I'm doubting it. It's just true. And so are we learning to create space in our life to give attention to his presence? To say, I know you said you're with me, but man, if you're the sun and I'm here on earth, it feels like the clouds are just thick right now. I don't feel your presence with me. And what does it learn to give time and space to draw near to him in your daily life like Jesus did? He would often withdraw to the lonely places to be with his father. So we talked about that. We talked about rejoicing, that a part of being human is to look at the goodness of the world, the beauty in the world as evidence of God's goodness and God's love and God's glory. And we are made as human beings to honor him for that goodness and to thank him for it. And so what does it mean to when you get an encouraging day or a note from a friend or just have a wonderful breakfast or a beautiful Sunday morning in Denver, Colorado, to rejoice in God, to actually attribute that goodness to the maker and to give him glory for it by thanking him, just living a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and rejoicing because of who he is and because of what he's done to bring redemption into the world. Last week, Joel talked about yielding what, or asking. What does it mean to ask God to move, to move in your life, to move in the lives of others in the world as you feel the, the brokenness in your own hearts, as you feel these longings within you, as you look at your friends who are going through hardship and difficulty and have their own longings, as you look at the world, the injustice, the pain and the difficulty, what does it, learn to, what does it mean to learn to ask God to move, to move in your life, to move in the lives of others, and to move in the world, to actually confess our dependence on him, to heal and restore that which has been broken by sin. And so today what we're looking at is the final piece of this prayer model, which is 
the why of yield. What does it mean to yield? What does it mean to slow down and surrender control to the goodness and the wisdom of God? Um, This in particular, I would say for the past three or four years of my life, maybe more, but especially over the past three or four, this has been like the main environment where God has been growing me, is learning how to surrender to him. Surrendering control, surrendering outcomes, surrendering my reputation, surrendering my dreams, surrendering my desires, surrendering how people view me or think about me, surrendering how things go, learning how to surrender these things, surrendering my family, surrendering my agenda into the hands of God who has more wisdom than I do and who knows that I don't always need and often will need life to not go all the ways I want to actually learn to trust him more than I trust myself or my power or my control over things. So it's been meaningful for me. We need God to help us uh, even today. Uh, All of us are in different spaces in life, and this might hit places that are tender for you. It might be things that are fresh for you uh, to think about, but I think God does want to lead us deeper into Uh, being a yielding or a surrendered people. And so uh, let's pray for a moment that he would help us do it this morning. Um, Jesus, we come right now, and just that, that song we just sang is still ringing in my ears. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. Man, I want that to be true. You know how hard that is for me. You know the battle I have in living a life of surrender. I imagine that being hard for a lot of my friends in this room. And so Holy Spirit, would you help us today? Would you help us learn how to trust you, to love you, to trust your wisdom, your goodness, your redemptive purposes, your nearness, your presence, your compassion in the midst of all the things we face, in the midst of all of our unfulfilled longings, in the midst of all the pain and the difficulties that we've encountered that are expressed and represented in this room, would you help us to learn how to surrender like you did, Jesus? To say, Father, here's what I'm feeling, here's what I long for, but I give it to you. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so help us, King Jesus, through the power of your spirit, this morning we pray in Christ's name, amen. I wanna start with a question that in some senses is maybe simple and others Uh, really deep, Um, and it's simply this, uh, what do you want out of life? Like, what what do you want out of life? And you can think of that in these kind of like grand metaphysical terms. You can also just think like today, as you approach today, what do you want? What do you want? Like, what are you aiming at? What's your heart like inclined towards? Maybe you're chasing after something with your career, and you're hoping for a career where you know, you can have this job that has just the right amount of flexibility and the right amount of structure and clarity, uh, where you can have good kind of workplace culture, but also you don't have to be there if you don't want to. You can have unlimited time off and work remotely if you need to. You've got all these kind of perks, incredible benefits, great culture, make amazing money, opportunities for advancement, and, and, and most importantly, this, this reality that it's something that gives you a sense of meaning and joy. And so you want profit and nonprofit. You want flexibility and structure. You want freedom and advancement, but also kind of freedom to kind of like not make your job everything. Like you want all that stuff. And if you could find that job, like, yes, that's what I'm going after. And you wake up tomorrow morning and you're not in that job. You're not in that job. And so you have to like sort through, what do you do in that gap? You have this longing and you've got this gap, or maybe it's related to friendships. 
Uh, You long for friendships that are fun and down-to-earth and engaging and vulnerable and not too serious, but can be serious only when you want to be serious, you know, and like all you like have this idea of what friendship and community and depth means, and here you are, and you feel like your friendships feel shallow, or you're new to a city, you're new to a college, and you're just not feeling it right now. So you have this longing, and you have where you are, and, and what do you do in that gap, right? Or it's maybe it's a relational thing. Uh, you long for marriage, you long for a spouse, or just a dating relationship right now. You're like, I'm not there yet. I just want like, I just want like a significant other. And I, and I, not just any significant other, just let me get a little more specific if we're saying what I want, right? What I want is tens, all tens, right? Tens on looks, tens on intelligence, tens on personality, tens on like alignment of personality type. I heard somebody say one time when, when a young man was expressing like what they wanted out of a out of, a, out of a female, and he's like, so you basically want a 10? And the guy's like, yeah. He's like, bro, you're like a six. You know, and it was like, <laughs> it was like I hope she's not looking for a 10. Um, hope, I hope she's willing to resign here. Uh, so, like, what do you want, right? We feel these things. Uh, it might be related to your family. Man, just want, I want my family to be in a healthier spot. It might be related to having kids. It might be related to marriage. It might be related to getting into that next stage of life. It might, re- might be related to your housing situation. I'd love to own a house, or I'd love to get to a place where you had more space, or whatever it might be. We're kind of always like looking for more, and welcome to humanity. Humanity, humanity as human beings, we are desiring creatures. We are like motivated by our desires, by our uh, affection for, and our longing for a certain kind of vision of life. That's who we are as human beings. We are inclined at a desire level. And desire moves us, desire motivates us, desire pushes us. And that, that's what we are as humans. We're all chasing different things. And what we need to ask today is, as you're chasing those things in this really human way, you have human desire, what do you do when the things that you long for, the life you long for, whatever vision that is for you, what do you do when it's not happening? When there's obstacles and failures and difficulties and setbacks and challenges? What do you do even as a Christian? You've been asking for these things and it's not happening. What do you do? We all do that. We all do something with that tension. All of us do. There are religions and philosophies that do something with that tension. I think of like Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism is essentially saying the problem here is desire. If you have desire, then you will feel pain. And if we want to avoid pain, the path is to separate yourself, to detach from desire, and to actually enter away from the physical world of desire into the life of the mind where you can be free. And the more you can separate and detach yourself from desire and kind of live a life without desire, free from desire, you find a real sense of peace or nirvana or wholeness. That's the path. Or you think about Stoicism. Stoicism as Greek philosophy that still has like a lot of traction today. Stoicism is be honest about reality. Like be real about the nature of the world. Life is hard. Just get, get your mind and heart around that reality. Life is hard. Learn to deal with it. Learn to deal with it. Do the best you can to resist desire, to resist fear, to resist longing, to resist these affections and live congruent with your nature. Live live congruent with your nature. Live according to your nature. And when you live according to your nature and you live with virtue, you can have a sense of fulfillment even when life is chaotic and crazy. In America, what we tend to do is say, try harder. Try harder. It's not going the way you want. Try harder. Every sports movie you've ever seen is a story of like challenges, difficulty, failure, and then somebody who tried harder. 
right? Rudy, Rudy. Is anybody? All right, you guys, a lot of you are too young for Rudy, which is sad. So your main application point for this sermon is to go home and watch Rudy. Just watch Rudy. It'll be better for it. But Rudy, you know, it's, just, it's all the stories. Watch, remember the Titans with our kids last night and like Coach, uh, uh, Coach Boone's like, I'm a winner. I win. You know, this is kind of like, this is the sort of American mentality. Like, win, succeed, push through it, overcome. Like, lift yourself up by your bootstraps and try harder. And so if you are here, the expectation is, here I am at this stage in life. I have a vision of an up and to the right life, an up and to the right family, an up and to the right career, an up and to the right housing situation, up and to the right income, up and to the right retirement, up and to the right friendships, up and to the right recreational habits and opportunities. All those things just should keep getting better. And so we're like here, and we're trying, and we're trying, and we're trying to like make it all better. And, and that kind of, that, that, that effort that hustle, right? Hustle is like the kind of, I don't know if people still use hustle, but there's a day when people would talk about they've got hustle. You know, they've got grit. They're, 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 they're pushing through the pain to accomplish things. That's like, that's like the water you swim in is hustle. Get it done. Succeed. Win. What's right under the surface of that hustle culture is ridiculous anxiety. Incredible anxiety. When people are feeling, I am hustling and it's not happening. It was happening and like 10 years into life, it's not happening. And I'm feeling that anxiety, I'm feeling that stress. It seems like it's happening for other people, but it's not happening for me and so anxiety. After that anxiety comes this kind of like frenetic scrambling and you feel people like going through emotional breakdowns because that the idea that this might not work out for me, I might not get the life I long for is now like leading to a frenetic scrambling and an incredible emotional breakdown. Often the space where people land is depression, disillusionment, discouragement, despair. We don't like those emotions. We don't like anxiety. We don't like scrambling. We don't like depression. And so what we do as a society is we numb ourselves with your kind of escapist mechanism of choice whether that's going to kind of vicariously watch some sports movie where somebody wins and gets it done so I can vicariously feel like a winner by like getting excited with this make-believe or old story, somebody else's story, or just numb myself with, again, whatever it might be, whether it's social media or alcohol or weed or just distraction and busyness and activity, whatever it might be. And so most of us are on that spectrum unless I'm the only one, unless I'm the only one. Anybody else resonate with that? Okay. Four of us do, and so this message is for the four of us that are ready to be honest. The rest of you, if you'd write a book about how you're getting it done, how you're killing it, how to kill it by Park Church, uh, you know, congregants. Um, the reality is we're all, we're all feeling it. And if you think you're the only one, you're wrong. It's, it's nearly all of us. That spectrum from hustle, work hard, to some like low-grade anxiety to like some very acute anxiety to real sense of depression and sadness and disillusionment to escapist tactics to numb those feelings. This is just the kind of American experience. It's under the hood of the succeed-win culture is incredible pain. And so what, what do we do with this reality? What do you do when you face a life where there's challenges and difficulties and obstacles, there's loss and failure and grief and sin and regret and shame and setbacks and chaos and death? We get to talk about that for 12 weeks during Ecclesiastes. I know, so all the realists in the room, you're like, those are pessimists. No, we're realists. Pessimists are realists. Um, 
No, I, uh, I think there's so much beauty and so much goodness, but what do we do when we start facing the realities of these things? And this is where I think the idea of yielding and surrendering to reality, surrendering control, surrendering outcomes, surrendering dreams into the hands of a God who is good and a God who loves you and a God who has redemptive purposes that include not all your dreams coming true. The redemptive purposes of God include your death and the death of everyone you know and love. On the other side of the grave is the resurrection. And that is the end. That is the place where all those longings come to their final fulfillment. In this life, there's thorns, there are thistles, and there's death. It doesn't mean that the longings are unhealthy. And C.S. Lewis's terminology in, the, in his chapter on hope is that what if those longings are evidence that you are made for another world? that there's something you long for. So how do you live in that space, in the chaos where life is full of thorns and thistles and death and beauty and goodness and love, but it's all of it. How do you live in that space with all of these longings? And a huge piece of it is learning to surrender, learning to yield. To surrender is simply to relinquish control into the hands of another, to relinquish control of your life into the hands of another, to relinquish control of your dreams into the hands of another, to relinquish control of your past and your future and your present into the hands of another, to relinquish control of your family into the hands of another, to relinquish control of your salvation outside of your control into the hands of another, to say, I cannot do this on my own. I'm relinquishing control to you. I'm learning to surrender or to yield. And so there's nobody who does this better than Jesus of Nazareth. In his story, he is not merely the kind of like picture of God, but he's also the image of what humanity is supposed to be. So Jesus is the exact image of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what humanity is supposed to be like, look at Jesus. Jesus is a picture of God, and we are created to be images of God. So if you want to know what thriving, full, wholehearted human beings look like, Look at Jesus, and what we'll find in Jesus is a man who is ready to surrender, to surrender. And this passage, this iconic passage in Mark chapter 14 takes us into the heart of it. And so what I want to do is kind of hone in on really the first few verses of this section. I want us to get the context, hone in on these few verses and say, what do we learn from Jesus about what it means to yield control to God, trusting in his goodness and wisdom? In the context... Jesus is, this is on a late, on a kind of, in our kind of like time set, a Thursday night. So in the middle of the night on a Thursday. On that coming Friday, the next dawn, the next day, Jesus that night will be arrested. It'll happen right at the tail end of this passage. He'll be handed into the officials of the, of the high priest. He'll then be convicted to death through an unjust trial. He'll be handed over to the Romans. And then he'll be sentenced to death on a cross. And he'll be crucified. That crucified. That's all going to happen in the next you know, 10, 12 hours. It's going to happen. Before this moment, Jesus was enjoying a beautiful meal with his closest friends. They're in a room, it was a Passover meal for the Passover festival in Jerusalem. They're eating, they're drinking wine, they're talking, he's teaching them. He knows what's coming and you can feel the weight as he's preparing them for what's about to come. But it's a beautiful kind of moment with his friends. And that moment ends with them gathering together, somebody pulling out a guitar and them having like a worship session together. I mean, it's this like beautiful picture. They walk out of this incredible meal together with with close friends and loved ones and, and real heartache that's right there present. But they worship God together. They walk out. Jesus prepares them for what's to come. And he walks into the garden. And that's where we pick up in verse 32 of Mark 14. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, this olive garden. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. 
And he took, them, took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly, listen to these words, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. First thing I want us to see is that to yield control of God really begins with honesty. That we need to be honest with God. You can be honest with God about your sadness, your pain, and your desires. We, we glance over this, this kind of part of Jesus' story often. I want you to, to pay attention to the words that Mark uses and then Jesus uses. So Mark describes what's happening internally, and Jesus expresses it to his friends here in the passage. Mark says, he was greatly distressed and troubled, like he was in turmoil within himself. As he considered what is about to come, that a close friend had already left and would be betraying him shortly, that all of his closest friends would abandon him and leave him alone, that he would be in prison, he would feel the weight of these things, he would feel the injustice, he would feel all of these things happening to him and what he was ultimately coming for and what was coming for him is death on the cross and separation from his father. He had a sense of what was coming and it led him to real emotions, real emotions, distressed and troubled. Then he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. The way you could translate that is, I'm so sad it feels like I could die. Not I'm, not, not I'm so sad because I'm going to die, which he was. The sorrow itself was crushing him to the point that it felt like death. Felt like death. And he is honest with himself and he's honest with his friends and he's about to be honest with his father about what he truly longs for, what he wants. Well, we as Christians can, can find ways to avoid the reality of our sorrow and our pain. What, one way we avoid it is through comparison, the comparison game. Um, and I understand this. It's true that there are people who have faced incredible, incredible devastation and sorrow. That is unfathomable. We have people in our community that have faced pain and terror that is hard for me to think about. We have people who have lost siblings and children horrifically. We have people who have lost parents. We have people who have lost close friends. We have people facing incredible chronic pain who have fought with disease and through disease. We have people who have experienced abuse, who have experienced all kinds of trauma, who have seen horrific things in their life. That's true. That's true. And if that's, and that's you today, you know sorrow. You know trauma. You know pain. You know trouble. There are people in the world that you could list and start talking about the pain and trauma people have faced. If you haven't faced some of those kinds of things, what you tend to think is, then my pain shouldn't be called pain. If that's called pain, then what I have is like not, not worthy of compare. And I think it's okay to be honest about there being different degrees of pain. But what causes you pain causes you pain. The pain you experience is real, and learning how to be honest about your pain and how you experience that is really important. So often because of our desire to compare myself and say, hey, relatively, I feel good, we take the aspects of our own pain and we suppress those. And what that means is later in life when we feel different kinds of pain, we haven't learned to be honest about it. We've learned to minimize it and push it away. So that's one way is we deflect through comparison. Another way is we theologize ourselves away from our pain. This is my own tactic. I can live in my head way easier than I can live in my heart. 
And so for a lot of my life, we've talked about this before, I feel like the kind of like theology of God's sovereignty and his goodness and, and where the whole world's headed and the story, I like put things in mental categories. I think because God's sovereign and because he's going to redeem everything and his promises are true, like therefore I can't be honest about the pain and the sorrow and the longings I have because I trust in the sovereignty of God. And so we take the theology and we let the theology suppress the emotions. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus knows what he had come to do. He knows where this is all headed. And he's still honest that he's so sad he feels like he could die. He's distressed. He's troubled. He's expressing those things. It's weighing on his body. It's weighing on his mind. It's weighing on his heart. It's the way he's re- affecting how he's relating to his friends. It's affecting how he's relating to the Father. It's real. And so what we often do is we kind of take, we had a kind of a, a psychologist friend that would talk to me about kind of we have two legs in life. We have like your, your theology leg of like what's true about God and reality and your psychological leg, what's true about how you feel and how you're experiencing things. And a healthy human has both of these. For like decades of my life, like the, the theology leg was so far out. I was like splitting my, you know, proverbial pants with this like, like thinking about God's sovereign, therefore I can't feel. God's sovereign, therefore, I can't be honest about my longings and desires because all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. <laughs> know that one. I know a lot of those. And I've used them to shut down emotion. Does that mean they're wrong? No, they treasure those truths. I love those truths. But learning how to be honest, to be honest about what is it that you're longing? What is it that you're feeling? What is it that you're, where are you experiencing pain? The big things and the small things. God, I long for a different kind of job. God, I long for healing in my marriage. God, I long for a reconciliation in my relationship with my parent or with my child. God, I long for this friend that I know that's struggling with this chronic pain. I long for you to heal that. God, this family in our church that's struggling, that's wrestling through a lot of stuff with uncertainties in their pregnancy, we're praying. We long, we're asking. I'm sad, I'm confused, I'm frustrated, I'm like overwhelmed. God, this loss I've experienced, I don't know what to do. And we learn to get honest with God about these things. This is the foundation of surrendering. Surrendering in the Christian tradition is not killing desire, nor killing emotion. It's not killing desire, like Zen Buddhism. It's not killing emotion, like Stoicism. It's getting really honest. And it's the foundation of doing these in healthy and redeeming ways. And so we learn how to get really honest. Let's look at this next observation from the passage. Second observation. Remember the character of God and his fatherly goodness and his unlimited power. Look at what Jesus says. As he's feeling these things, uh, and this is, I think, a profound thing. It's affecting even his ability to stand on his own feet. He says, going a little farther, he fell on the ground. He fell down. It's not saying he kneeled down. He fell down. He was so overwhelmed. He was st- Have you ever been like so taken aback by pain and loss that it just like made you want to collapse or you did collapse? Jesus collapsed in his sorrow. And he prayed. So he turned to God in that sorrow, not just to express to his friends and not just to say, how could God do this and talk about God's plan for his life and how could this happen? He turned to God with his pain and he prayed. He says he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. The hour being this coming suffering and death through which he would suffer at the hands of humanity and he would bear the wrath of God on behalf of humanity. And he prayed that it would pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Look at how he starts. He's actually praying, and he prays this multiple times on this night. All the gospels record it at least three times, but the sense is he kept on praying. He was begging God. He was pleading with God. And the way he pleaded with God wasn't merely with the expressed desire, though it was. He was actually with a confession of God's character. Notice what he says. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He's confessing God's fatherly goodness and his unlimited power. That Jesus believes as he's asking God to do something different and to change the course of directions where everything seems like it's headed, it's overwhelming Jesus and Jesus is pleading with God if there's another way, if there's another way to do this, if there's another way to bring salvation, if there's another way to bring redemption, if there's another way to bring restoration into the world, if there's another way, I want the other way. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to die. I don't want to be betrayed. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want that. I want to redeem the world. That's what I came to do. But if there's another way to let this cup pass from me, God, would you give me another way? And in that space, he confesses God's goodness and God's power. We have a hard time as a, as a people kind of bringing these things together. When we start talking about confessing God's goodness and power in the face of pain, we enter into one of the most significant theological issues that humans wrestle with. It's the issue of theodicy. If God is good and God is powerful, which Jesus confesses both, why does he allow so much pain in this world? And people have been wrestling with that question forever. But lucky for you, at Park Church, we're going to answer it today in a really satisfying way. We figured it out. What a question. You're going to wrestle with that your whole life. You're going to wrestle with that your whole life. And learning how to wrestle and how to be honest with God as you wrestle is really important. I do think there are some things that are helpful for us, though. Um, some frameworks that help us understand things in a, in, a, in a biblical worldview that I think is important as we wrestle with the reality, these realities. When we think about the presence of goodness and beauty, I, I will say often, the things that feel most obvious to me about this world is that the world is beautiful and broken. That just feels obvious to me. I'm gonna start with that as a presupposition. I'm not gonna try to convince you. It's beautiful and it's broken. The question we have to ask as human beings is where does the beauty come from and where does the brokenness come from, right? In the biblical storyline, we, we get answers to that. Right out of the gate, you get God creating everything and saying it's really good, it's really good, it's really good. When everything and everyone obeys the words of the creator king, it's really good. That's where the goodness comes from. And humanity said to the creator king, listening to the lies of an enemy, I'm gonna turn from you and I'm gonna try to take your creation and kind of suck the goodness out of it apart from your reign and authority over me. So we reject the creator of life and love and goodness and wisdom and grace and rest and joy and security. We push away from the giver of life and we try to create life on our own terms in this world. And the Bible calls that sin and the wages of sin is death. And what that brings into the world is a curse. Genesis 3 introduces the reality that Thorns and thistles and corruption and death are in the world. They're in the world. You don't have to read that from Genesis 3. Just pay attention. It's all around us. It's all around us. And the Bible gives a story of origins of where that came from. And that's us listening to the lie of an enemy and pushing away from our creator. And so when we face thorns and thistles, which it talks about in Genesis 3, and we face death it is true that there are kinds of thorns and thistles and pain as we're trying to navigate this life that is overwhelming and devastating. There are experiences of death that come at times and in ways that break your heart and rip your soul in two. So much pain. So much pain. 
But the presence of pain and suffering and death is a baseline given in our world. It's a baseline given. And so when we feel these things and we're saying, God, where are you? Where are you? We have to, re- or why did you do this? We have to understand where it came from. Not just where it came from, but we start wondering if it's there, doesn't God care? And we, we know from history that he does. The story of Jesus is the story of a God who cares. That he looked on the world and didn't say, you rejected me, so thorns and thistles and death until you all die and then you're done. I'm gonna allow you to procreate forever, but I'm gonna keep you in suffering forever because you rejected me. Good luck with that. And steps away. No, it's in compassion he moved towards us. The incarnation of Jesus is God taking on human flesh in compassion, seeing us in that pain and wanting to do something about it. He sees us like, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then in Jesus' earthly life, he suffered in those things. He didn't kind of come in a way where he could kind of like float above the pain and just come and help you out when you were struggling. He entered into it. He felt it. He tasted it. He experienced it. He was rejected. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was condemned. He suffered oppression. He suffered injustice. He suffered manipulation from people. He had people trying to use him and abuse him and cast him aside. He had friends that would come to his side and then betray him in his hours of greatest need. And ultimately, he suffered and was executed wrongfully as an innocent and righteous man. He suffered in this world. And so he doesn't just have compassion, he has sympathy. He gets suffering. He can weep with those who weep. It breaks his heart. He knows what it feels like. It's not just compassion, it's not just sympathy, it's also redeeming love. When he died, he wasn't just suffering injustice, he was laying down his life to atone for human sin, to redeem us, and to create a way through which, through his blood, through his death and resurrection, we could be forgiven and reconciled to our creator. And so we say, does God love us in suffering? Of course he does. That's what Jesus demonstrates. He is the demonstration of God's love for us, even while we are still sinners. He loves you. We sing it often. There's a God who bleeds. There's a God who weeps. There's a God who bleeds. It's a God who weeps. He's not callous and indifferent and aloof and distant. He sees. He's felt. He cares. He's moved towards it. So the question for me isn't like, how could a good God allow suffering or does God care about it? I feel like, man, I, I see that. The question for me is like, why doesn't he fix it faster? That's the question I think we're asking as Christians. Why doesn't he fix it faster? Like, why didn't he, like, die and rise from the dead and then, like, make us all, like, happy and holy and loved and whole and bring the new creation right away? Why is it taking so long? Why is there still pain? Why is there still, in Paul's words in Romans 8, why is the creation still subjected to futility? Why doesn't he fix it faster? And that's where we have to have a framework even for the significance of transformation and the process of transformation. There, there's an author named Robert Mulholland who wrote a book called Invitation to a Journey. And he talks about the Christian journey and that kind of this movement of discipleship as the process, the process through which we are transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of the world. So it's a, it's a process through which we are transformed into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. And what we want is that process to be like a microwavable process. We want it to be like zap it, you know, like, you know, what's the, the Pop-Tarts in the microwave thing? Three seconds, remember the Brian Regan skit? We want like three seconds, like put it in, zaps it, it's nice, it's great, you got your breakfast, get on. I, like, transform me now. 
Like, heal me now. Help me stop struggling with these insecurities and these fears and the shame and these sin patterns and these kind of deep-seated trust structures that I'm like clinging on to or I'm still trying to find life and joy and how people think about me or I'm still trying to find pleasure in the things I can experience in this world or I'm still trying to find security in my finances or I'm still trying to find acceptance by my parents or I'm still trying to find approval by my peers or I'm still trying to prove my worth through my net worth and my career advancements or whatever it might be. I'm still trying to get like affection from people by the way I look and man, I don't want that anymore. Like, just fix it all now. Why can't you just, like, zap it and fix it now? And the reality is that, 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 that the fact that we live in a world that is so full of goodness and beauty, given our rebellion against God, all of the goodness is mercy. It's just straight mercy. It's his patience. It's his love. And so we're saying, hey, if you love us, heal it now, or else I'm going to accuse you as the wrongdoer. What if God's process of transforming us takes time because there are things we need to be freed from? There are things we need to learn. And the learning process takes time, takes challenges. In the words of James, it takes trials of various kinds. In the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1, it takes trials of various kinds. In the words of Paul, it takes trials of various kinds. In the words of Jesus, in this world you'll have trouble. Like, what if, what if it is the trouble in learning to trust God in those spaces that leads to transformation? The ancient kind of Christian writers will talk about this as the process of purgation. Purgation, that there are things that we need to be purged from. And as much as I wish, like, you could read your Bible and pray and automatically be holy and happy, the reality is that challenges and difficulty that, that strip away the idols that we've clinged to in place of God, in place of his goodness, are necessary in the process of transformation. That's why Paul will say at the end of a life full of suffering, I have learned the secret of being content. I know how to have a lot and I know how to have nothing. How did he learn that? Shipwrecks, abandonment, imprisonment, betrayal, hardship, and that Jesus was with him in all of it. And so he learned to say, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I'm going to keep on living, I'm going to live for Jesus. But if I'm going to die, that's wonderful because I get to go be with him. Jesus became everything to Paul through a life of challenges and difficulties. It was the same for Jesus. It was the same for Jesus. The author of Hebrews will say, a really stunning line in Hebrews where it says, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. It's an interesting phrase. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That for him, the kind of show what human life is and to enter into it was to trust God, not just when things are going well, but to trust God and stay faithful to the Father, even when there are temptations by Satan, pleading with him to turn. Satan pleaded with Jesus to turn from God. People were saying, no, don't go that way. Don't follow the Father. Don't trust in the Father. Peter tempted him to turn away from the cross. There was his own internal struggle, the temptations from within him to turn away from the cross, and he held on to it and walked into the suffering obediently and willingly because he knew that to trust in God and to follow the Father was the path to real life. So the author of Hebrews will also say it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross despising the shame. He knew that true joy, true life comes from surrendering to the Father's will. And so that's our last observation in this passage, to yield to the Father's wisdom and redeeming love. To yield to the Father's wisdom and redeeming love. Listen to the prayer of Jesus again. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So he expresses the desire. He knows God's character. He expresses the desire. Remove this cup 
from me. He prayed this three times. Remove this cup from me. This is not the way I would want it to go down. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. It's not about what I want, Father. It's about what you want. True joy, true life is to trust in your wisdom and your redeeming love. Jesus knew that on the other side of the cross comes the resurrection. That's what that author of Hebrews is saying, for the joy set before him. He knew what obedience would mean. It would mean redemption. It would mean salvation. It would mean the healing of the world. It would mean the beginning of the restoration of all things. It would mean the beginning of the new creation being unleashed in the world through the redeeming love of God. He knew that. And although he felt the pain and did not want the pain, he was willing to walk into it and embrace the Father's wisdom in his own journey and submit to the Father even in the face of pain for the joy set before him. He knew that for a human being, the end of your journey, the end of your journey is death. It, 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 we know that. That's not harsh because it's the most real thing on the planet. The end of your journey and the end of the journey of everyone you love is death. There will come a day when you will need to surrender everything. You will need to surrender your wealth. You will surrender your family. You will surrender your reputation. You will surrender your looks. You will surrender your possessions. You will surrender all your health itself. There is a day when you will have to surrender all of it. We live in a culture that's trying to make you ignore those things as much as they can and saying that's going to lead you to a good life as if you, you ignore those things. And Jesus says, embrace it and surrender. Learn to surrender now. When your job's not going the way you want it to, learn to surrender. When you pray these unanswered prayers, learn to surrender, whether they're big or small. When you learn to surrender in the small things, you'll be preparing yourself for surrendering that big thing, which is to trust God like the Apostle Paul did, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I have learned through my life, Paul says, that Jesus is enough. For me, for the past few years, I'm beginning to learn to surrender. I care about outcomes. I care about how people think about me. I want to succeed. I want things to go well. I want you to like me. I want my family to like me. I want my neighbors to like me. You're like, you're really messed up, Gary. I'm like, I know, I know. We, we, we talk about this very much. And these are things God is purging from me. And a lot of it is by my own experience of failure. My own, like having to face the, the junk in my own heart and the way it negatively impacts people. And learning to embrace, like, here I am. Here's my sin. Here's my shame. Here are my failures. Here's my inability to control. Here's my sense of inadequacy. Here I am. What does this mean? And learning how to surrender not just to the wisdom of God, but to his love, that he loves me and he'll never leave me or forsake me because of what Christ has done. The freedom I'm beginning to taste and it is a battle every day, is unlike anything I'd experienced in the first 35 years of my life. Over the past five years, I'm beginning to taste a freedom, but it's through surrender. It's through every day when I feel that tightness in my chest about this conversation I had where I said a dumb thing again. I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't funny. It was offensive. Oh, man. Ah, oh, Jesus. Will you forgive me? Asking people to forgive me surrender this to you, how they think about me. How stuff goes with our church. We had a downtown congregation fail hard. You know, for me, that was just learning to surrender. This is a leadership failure for me, and that's a part of my story. Mis mistakes I made as a leader affected people. I wish that wasn't the case. It makes me sad, but it's real.
I surrender. I have longings and dreams of what I hope to do with my family or my life and all these things and learning when I feel anxiety in my chest when those aren't going my way. Jesus, I give these things to you. I give them. I feel it in my body. I feel it in my soul. I feel the anxiety like anybody else. I struggle sometimes for weeks and months straining and striving and pushing and manipulating and controlling and then I'm like, ah, surrender. What does it mean for us to learn how to surrender? Jesus, we give you everything and give it all to you. And we trust that on the other side of death comes the resurrection. There's a framework that's been really helpful for me uh, for the past several years. It's in a book um, called Let Your Life Speak by a guy named Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker. It's about vocation. Just interesting book, but it's a collection of essays. The last one is called There is a Season. And There is a Season, Parker Palmer talk, talks about in our culture, we try to approach life as like a manufacturing plant. Like, what are we going to make out of life? Again, up and to the right. He says, what if growth for the human being is way more organic, more like a tree? More like a tree than like a manufacturing plant. What if growth includes seasons of springtime, which is like, man, things are rolling, and this is wonderful, and these new relationships, new friends, church is great, my job's great, your life is great, your finances are healthy, you're, you're growing, you're learning, things feel good, and, and you could kind of probably compartmentalize different areas of your life and feel that the seasons, you know, in different spaces, but the sense of like springtime is like, man, things are growing. There's so much life and abundance. It's kind of crazy and chaotic, hard to keep up with. And then there's the summertime. I'm like enjoying that abundance. And sure, there's a couple weeks that are like ridiculously hot here in Colorado, but like I have a sense like fall's coming and the weather's going to cool down. But like summertimes, you're kind of like riding on that spring. It's really sweet, sweet time. And then there's the fall. There's a fall where things start dying. At least it looks like they're dying. The leaves start falling. That abundance starts to diminish. The grass starts turning brown. And, and as everything goes down, it feels like things are dying. Maybe a relationship is dying. A dream is dying. Your career and what you thought was going to come of your career is dying. What you kind of hoped to experience in your own life, maybe even loss of people, is dying. There are things that are dying. It looks like it's dying. Do you know what's also happening in the fall? Things aren't actually dying. There's, there is a bit of a death but also seeds are being sown with wild abandon. With wild abandon. When those leaves fall, seeds are being sown for new life, but you've got to learn that death is a part of the cycle. And learning how to release and let things die is a healthy part of human formation. And then there's the winter, where everything just looks kind of dead. Where's God in the winter? When it feels like your dreams are gone, your longings what you thought was going to happen with your family, what you thought was going to happen with that relationship, what you thought was going to happen with your career, it just feels dead. In the winter, everything looks dead and it's cold and there's a lot of vulnerability. There's also a lot of clarity. You start seeing what's real and what matters. And God can meet you in the winter. I would say for the past couple years of my life, I've been feeling a winter. And I've learned to like, meet God in the winter and he's there. He's there. He's beautiful in the winter. And then after the winter, when it feels like things are dead, the reality is it wasn't dead. Growth had gone underground. And you'll start seeing sprouts of new life emerge. New life emerge. Things that you might not have ever expected. Something growing in an area that you didn't anticipate. And the cycle begins. And these things happen in your life, in different career, family, your spiritual life, your relationship with God. All these things in your health, they happen. And then they kind of happen in, in just your full life cycle. There's the spring of your youth. 
There's the summertime, there's the fall, and there's the winter. This is the life cycle. We're going to work on this on Ecclesiastes, and we're going to pay attention to this through the 12 weeks in Ecclesiastes. But what if it's wisdom to say, to embrace and surrender in these seasons? Instead of trying to manipulate and control and have an eternal spring, say, there's something God teaches me in the spring. There's something he teaches me in the summer. There's something he teaches me in the fall, and there's something he teaches me in the winter. I have needed and will continue to need falls and winters in my life. I need him. He's met me in ways that have been so profound, and I'm learning to fear them less. But I still want to be honest. I still want to be honest like Jesus, but we want to surrender. And so this is what we're praying God would help us do as a people. I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you a moment to actually reflect on that right now. Are there things in your life that God is calling you to surrender? And so let's pray together. Jesus, uh, we look to you as, a, as the one who surrendered to the Father. And as you went to the cross, you laid down your life, you atoned for our sin to reconcile us to God so that when we learn to come to you, when we learn to surrender, we know that we're not coming to a God who is opposed to us, but we're coming to a God who is for us. If God did not spare his own son, how would he also not with him graciously give us all things that you are for us and not against us? And so would you help us to believe that even while we learn to surrender? to you. And so help us even now, if there are things we're clinging on to tightly, if there are things that we're running to to give us life or security or love or acceptance or peace or pleasure or comfort that are unhealthy and that we've taken these desires, maybe even really good desires, but we've elevated them above you, would you help us to learn how to surrender and to release these things to you so we can develop deep, resilient faith in you that we could say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence and daily live. Would you help us, King Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you a moment. I'm going to put a couple of prayers on the screen behind me here or a couple of reflection questions. And you don't have to work through all of those. The first one is just things that you need to release things you need to release. Surrender is often about releasing. For me, this season, a lot about releasing. Sometimes surrender is about the courage to act. It's something God's calling you into. And it's the courage to step into something and to surrender your own dreams or ambitions, to be willing to follow Jesus where he's leading you. And then the last prayer is just a simple prayer. It comes from John Eldridge's book, Get Your Life Back. And it's this simple prayer, Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I pray that prayer daily, multiple times a day, every time I feel it, feel just myself trying to grab the reins again. Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. That meeting I give to you, that relationship I give to you, that day I give to you, that you know, objective I give that to you, this friendship I give this to you. So I encourage you to reflect on this for a moment and then we'll celebrate communion together.
Jesus, as we learn to surrender, as we wrestle and struggle, as our hearts are often torn, would you remind us that we're not surrendering to a God who is against us, but a God who is for us. God who loves us, we're surrendering to your love, we're surrendering to your presence, we're surrendering to your wisdom, we're surrendering to your goodness, we're surrendering to your promises that you will redeem every tear, you will heal the world of all pain, you will restore everything that's been broken. We're also learning to surrender to your timeline, and so would you help us? as we express ourselves, as we're honest with you about our desires, our pain, our longings, as we confess your character, would you help us to give everything and everyone to you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.